0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, are going to be having a chat about Leonardo da Vinci, the The archetypical Renaissance man, this bloke was a painter, an inventor, an engineer, draftsman, just a general all-round genius, really. He could do it all. Leonardo da Vinci is one of the most famous and celebrated artists in human history, but his achievements obviously go so much further than that. This bloke created over 13,000 pages of notes and sketches and drawings that that demonstrated his incredible understanding of, of everything from human anatomy to astronomy, from botany to military and civil engineering, from architecture to to aerodynamics. And then on top of all of that, as I say, he's one of the most famous artists in history. He's responsible for some of the most enduring works of art that have ever been created. The Mona Lisa, of course, The Last Supper, The Vitruvian Man. But what is most interesting, for me at least, about Leonardo da Vinci, it's not what we do know about him. But it's what we don't know about him. There is so much about Leonardo da Vinci that remains a mystery to us today. He was, in spite of his thousands and thousands of pages of notes on anything and everything, he was still a very private individual. He didn't keep any kind of personal diary or, or anything like that. So we know all the things that other people knew about him, that he was tall and handsome and strong and charismatic and unbelievably intelligent, must have been very nice for him. But when it comes to him personally, right, his hopes, his dreams, his thoughts and feelings, we only have very scant records. And a lot of what we, you know, quote unquote, know about this guy is based on guesswork, more or less. Leonardo would go on to be stunningly influential in the world of art, of course, pioneering and mastering new painting techniques. His scientific understandings were a long way ahead of their time as well. And so today, very, very correctly, he's remembered as one of the greatest minds ever, to have lived. So let's learn a thing or two about him here as we go through the, well, I guess what we know (laughs) of his life story. We'll talk about where he went, what he did, and of course, the famous works that he finished along the way. And quite interestingly, also the works that he didn't finish. And there were more than a few. Let me tell you that. Anyway, here we go. Let's get stuck in the story of Leonardo da Vinci. Let's get to it now. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 15th of April, 1452, to Italy, of course, to a town called—well, actually, you know what? I'm not going to call. I'm not going to tell you the name of the, the town just yet, because I'll use this as an opportunity to ask you my very favourite trivia question of all time. In a in a bygone age, I actually used to be a trivia show host. Uh, I used to work as a, you know hosting pub trivia shows uh, way way back years and years ago. And whenever I was caught in a bind and needed a question quickly, I would ask this question. It's my favourite trivia question, tri- trivia question of all time, and it's this: <clears throat> In which town? Was Leonardo da Vinci born, right? Now, you, you sort of think, well, I mean, how could I possibly know that? It's, you know, I don't keep a detailed, I don't know, Rome? Who knows, right? But this the reason this question is an absolute ripper, right, is because the answer is actually contained within the question itself. And even just a little bit of thinking will let you make an educated guess. He was, of course, born in Vinci. That's what da Vinci means. Da Vinci means from Vinci. Right? So it was in Vinci back in 1452 that Leonardo da Vinci was born. He was the illegitimate son of a bloke named Sir Piero da Vinci, uh, who was a lawyer, and his mistress, a woman named Caterina. Now, after Leonardo was born, his parents both ended up marrying other people, uh, quite a few people and when it came to his old man. Uh, so they didn't raise Leonardo together, and as you might have already guessed here, we don't really know much about his childhood. When you know when people that go on to be legendarily famous are born into, you know, the powerful ruling classes, we tend to know a little bit more about their earlier years because people write about the sons of kings, right? But when, you know, when great minds come from the great unwashed, no one has any reason to write about them before they actually become famous. And then on top of that, when they do become famous, people just kind of make stuff up about them. And their upbringings. So they're more interesting to the public, you know. So we end up with false information rather than none at all, which is probably worse. But end of the day, we don't know all that much about Leonardo as a boy, I'm afraid. He may have lived with his mum or maybe with his paternal grandfather. He probably didn't spend all that much time with his dad, whose work as a legal notary meant that he was away in Florence most of the time. But what we do know is that Leonardo uh, wasn't particularly well-educated when it came to literacy and numeracy. He only got a very basic education with reading and writing and maths and that sort of thing because instead his considerable artistic talent meant that his family, you know, once this talent sort of revealed itself, it meant that his family uh, sent him off to study under the famous artist Andrea del Verrocchio, right? He was one of the best painters and sculptors in Florence. And so at around 14, Leonardo was bundled off to Florence to start study under Verrocchio, right? So in Verrocchio's workshop, Leonardo worked more or less as an assistant for a couple of years, doing, you know, doing the, I don't know, the photocopying kind of Starbucks, doing Starbucks runs, I don't know, that sort of thing. But by the age of 17... He was an apprentice. He was apprenticed to Verrocchio and began to learn the art of, well, the art of of art. I I probably should have thought that one through, to be honest. Anyway, he hung about with uh, some very other famous artists as well while working uh, under Verrocchio, people like Botticelli, you might have heard of him. He was heavily influenced by uh, a number of other, you know, very famous uh, uh, artists that came through Verrocchio's workshop. And these artists you know, in the midst of the Renaissance, here we're in the process of, of making many breakthroughs um, when it came to uh, artistic techniques, things like composition, painting light and shadow, all sorts of stuff. Young Leonardo was on his way to becoming one of the most famous painters in human history but he was learning from the people who were the best at the time as well and who were pioneering these new techniques, techniques that Leonardo picked up and ran with and pioneered in his own way to forever change the game when it came to, the, to, to visual arts. Anyway, in 1472, when Leonardo was 20 years old, he gained a guild qualification as a master. Uh, he, he was part of the Guild of St. Luke, which handled painters, a guild of painters, sure, you think, well, that, that makes sense, right? And also doctors, weirdly, I don't, know what's going, I don't know why it was painters and doctors. I mean, you know, what's the doctor going to say? Oh, sorry, I, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, but, you know, while you lay there dying, I can get my colleague from the Guild to paint a nice picture of you, if you like. I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, Leonardo's dad offered to give him the money to start his own studio once he became established with the Guild. But Leonardo actually refused. He liked working with Verroccio so much that he stayed with him for many, many more years, even though he could have struck out on his own. But it took him... A long time to actually become a fully independent artist, and in this period, while he's working under or with Verrocchio, that he created his his earliest known surviving work. I mean, look, it's fourteen seventy three. you know, he's twenty one years old. It's not as if he hadn't done more works before this, but this is the one that we are able to say is the oldest surviving work that is definitely uh, attributable to Leonardo, and uh, it is a sketch of the Arno valley it's it's i mean it's it's pretty good fine it, it, it's it's fine it's a, it's a it's a nice sketch not his best work but then again you know all of all of my early podcasts are pretty ordinary as well to be honest so let's not rush to judgment anyway leonardo continued to work with Ferroccio until around 1478 so quite a number of years uh, and it was at this point that he finally branched out on his own in his mid 20s with wealthy patrons commissioning work from him work from him in his own right and there's a very, very, very good bloody reason that he got these commissions, because even in the earlier stages of, of his career, you know, I know I'm rubbishing his portrait of the Arno Valley, but even in the early stages of his career, Leonardo had an incredible amount of skill as an artist, particularly with painting. He, I mean, I talked about these techniques that he was pioneering. He, he changed the way that painters approached their art. Uh, in, in particular, Leonardo's mastery of light and shadow set him apart from the other artists at the time. And ultimately would go on to, again, as I say, influence generations of visual artists, painters, and, and, and the like, uh, in the centuries to come. And, you know, the, 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 thing, like it, the problem with this is it's easy to lose sight of why someone like Leonardo da Vinci is so universally lauded, because you look at his paintings next to the other old paintings, and I mean, what's the difference? They all kind of look the same. They've all got light and shadow and whatever else. But the thing is, and we've talked about this in other episodes, right? We have a tendency to compress older historical eras into one big amorphous blob that we just talk about as the olden days, you know? Like, if you saw a picture of a bloke who was wearing a ruff and a small powdered wig, you might think nothing of that because, yeah, sure, right? It's just olden day fashion. But those two fashion items were separated by centuries. This would be like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln wearing a pair of Air Jordans. And so when you put Leonardo's paintings next to someone like uh, uh, Caravaggio, right? Episode 181, get across it. they're all paintings, right? They're all kind of, you know, they're all kind of nice to look at, whatever. But you can't put these two artists in the same category because, again, Leonardo predates Caravaggio by over 100 years. What you need to do is Google 15th century art, and if you do that, you'll very quickly get an idea of just how good Leonardo was compared to other painters at the time. You might look at his paintings and go, "That's just an old painting. That don't impress me much. I've seen hundreds of these things." But this bloke was doing, the, was was creating these incredible masterpieces before anyone else could, essentially, right? So don't fall into the trap of lumping Caravaggio or Rembrandt or Vermeer all together just because they're all olden day painters. Leonardo da Vinci was around before all of them, and his work speaks for himself. Instead, compare him to Botticelli, to Van Eyck. Get a sense of just how good this bloke was compared to the people that he was painting at the same time as. The techniques that he pioneered, things like sfumato, the gradual and soft transitioning from light into dark. These were the things behind Leonardo becoming one of the greatest artists in history and also paving the way, as I say, for future generations of artists who who picked up and, and, and developed his techniques even further to take art to where it is now. Anyway, this uh, mastery, I guess, that he had, this incredible skill that he had oh, with the paint and brush, this was what was behind him picking up these commissions I mentioned in the late 1470s. However, in what will become a bit of a theme with this bloke, Leonardo da Vinci, he didn't finish them. He didn't finish the first couple of commissions that he received because instead he went to work for the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, right? Leonardo wrote Sforza a letter, you can go online and read this letter, it's fascinating, it's basically a CV and a cover letter. And he told Sforza not just about how good he was with paints, but, you know, some of the ideas he had about weaponry, engineering, how quickly he could build bridges and cannons and all these other things, all these other incredible ideas that he had. And Sforza, obviously interested. He was obviously interested enough, at least, to have Leonardo move all the way from Florence to Milan to come and work for him. And, I mean, the promises that Leonardo was making when it came to the stuff that he could achieve for the Duke, I mean, they were pretty out there. So this bloke obviously wanted to find out. So Leonardo moved in 1482 and uh, began what is, is what is known as his first Milanese period. There, there, there will be a second, let me tell you that. And this lasted until 1499. It saw him produce some of his most famous works of art, ones that you'll instantly recognise. For instance, in 1485, Leonardo drew a picture of a bloke with his arms outstretched, standing inside a superimposed square and circle. And this bloke has another set of arms and legs spread out as well, demonstrating the proportions of the human body. And there's a bunch of text above and below it written in Leonardo's characteristic mirror writing. I'm talking of course about the Vitruvian Man. This is a drawing that was never famous in Leonardo's lifetime interestingly, but instead became famous in the 19th century. It is one of his most recognizable works, it is a it's become a symbol for the Renaissance really. Um, but you might be interested to know what is going on with the text above and below it. It is essentially just an explanation of the, the drawing talking about the proportions of the human body, as I mentioned. Um, I, I've got a, a, a transcription of one of the things here. He, he wrote, <clears throat> The length of the outspread arms is equal to the height of a man. From the hairline to the bottom of the chin is one-tenth of the height of a man. From below the chin to the top of the head is one-eighth of the height of a man. And so on. So he was just explaining the proportions that are sort of set out in, in the picture of the Vitruvian man. And, um, but you'd have a hard time reading it, let me tell you that. It is, I mean, and not just because I'm guessing you don't speak 15th century Italian, it's also written backwards in mirror writing. As I say, Leonardo wrote his personal notes in mirror writing, while we're not 100% sure why he did this. It is actually true, it, you know, it's one of those sort of uh, little factoids that you sometimes hear and think, oh, is it actually the case? But yes, it was true, he did write in mirror writing. And we don't know why. Some argue that he did it to disguise his secret secret thoughts and ideas to make sure that people couldn't read them at a glance. It's obviously never been conclusively proven. Um, another reason potentially could have been as simple as the fact that he wrote with his left hand. Um, he he may be ambidextrous. Again, we're not sure, but he definitely wrote with his left hand, and uh, it's uh, it's easier to write from. Right. Well, I shouldn't say easier. It's more advantageous, I guess, to write from right to left if you're left-handed because you don't smudge the ink everywhere as you write. So it, it may have just been as simple as that for Leonardo. He found it easier or, or more simple or at least not as messy to write from right to left with his left hand. Whatever the reason, it is definitely true that most of the stuff that he wrote is in mirror writing, except anything that he wrote uh, that was designed for other people to read, so his letters or anything that was designed for publication. You know, he didn't send letters to people in mirror writing. Imagine that. Imagine sending a bloody puzzle for them to complete whenever he got in touch. Anyway, The Vitruvian Man just is one of just hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of sketches that Leonardo did throughout his lifetime, dealing with a huge breadth of topics, as I mentioned, from art to biology to botany to astronomy and so much more. We'll talk about that in, in a little bit. For now, we're still hanging out with uh, Leonardo in Milan, where he's working for Sforza, taking commissions, not finishing many of them, uh, and doing stuff for the Duke, all sorts. Sforza took Leonardo up on the offers he made in this letter to build him incredible things, bridges, uh, you know, pieces of of, of complicated and advanced machinery. All these ideas that Leonardo had fizzing around in his head, Sforza had many of them uh, brought to life. And um, he built and drew, well, I'm not going to say he built, but he drew and designed everything from church domes to parade floats to massive statues of horses. Uh, In fact, in 1494, Leonardo had completed the design for this enormous equestrian monument. It would have been the biggest Renaissance equestrian monument ever made but he never actually got to make it. And I know I've been, you know, I've been sort of bagging this bloke for never finishing what he started, but this time it wasn't his fault. This time it wasn't Leonardo's fault. He didn't follow through because Sforza got together all the bronze that was needed for this statue. Leonardo was ready to go. He's got the drawing done on it. You know, he's ready to follow the instructions and, and get it all, all built like a big bloody bit of Ikea furniture. But then... Sforza came in and said, sorry, Leonardo, old son, going to have to stop you there. We're not building the horse after all. And Leonardo goes, what are you talking about, mate? I've, been, I've spent ages doing Actually, he probably didn't spend ages on it, did he? Mate, I've spent ages, I've spent 15 minutes doing this picture, of it, doing this drawing of it. What am I going to do? You want me to build this horse or not? And he goes, Sforza goes, mate, I'm so sorry. I can't give you the bronze to make the horse. My brother-in-law, the Duke of Ferrara, is under attack from the French, and he needs the bronze to make cannons to defend his city. So Leonardo didn't get to make his horse, the bronze went off to become cannons to defend another Italian city, but you know, look, I'm sure there'll be more opportunities for him to finish a statue of a horse one day, don't worry, we'll we'll get to that in due course. Anyway, another famous work from this period that you'll certainly recognise is, of course, The Last Supper. This is a, a painting that Leonardo completed between 1495 and 1498. And you've probably seen pictures of it. It's the big painting with Jesus in the middle of a table surrounded by his dis- disciples. He's got his arms spread out and all the disciples are going mental. Oh, what do you mean you're being betrayed, Jesus, mate? None of us would do that. would? would none of us would betray you. Would, isn't that right, Judas? By the way, actually, while we're on this, right, did Jesus not at least, like, Suspect Judas a little bit of all the disciples, right? I reckon I'd bloody, I'd, I'd suspect the one with the name Judas. The name is basically synonymous with traitor, isn't it? I'm su- I, honestly, I'm surprised Jesus didn't figure that one out. Anyway, this painting, very famous, it is of course. But did you know it's not on canvas or a wood panel or anything else like that? No, it is actually painted onto the wall of a Milanese church called Santa Maria della Grazie, right? And because of this, and because of the way that Leonardo chose to paint it, hardly any of the original painting is actually still there. The paint has been damaged, and it's flaked off, and the colour has faded. I mean, it's been restored and reworked so much that it's actually a bit of a ship of Theseus now, to be honest. Not, not much of the actual painting by Leonardo is still there. But here's the best part, right? This is going to blow your mind if you don't know this. this, this you're never going to look at the painting the same way once I tell you this bit, so get ready, right? Go and have, you know go and have one last look and savor your knowledge. What you think is your knowledge of, of the Last Supper? Because this is going to blow your mind. You ready for this? I don't know how many times I saw this painting without realizing what, what I'm about to tell you here. There's a doorway cut into it. Have a look at it again. Down the bottom bit, right down the in, like down the bottom in the bottom half in the middle, right. There's a door. In 1652, someone just cut a door through half the bottom of the painting, through this wall that the painting was on. So now there's just a doorway through one of the most famous works of art ever created. Thanks to Whoever did that, great job, right? Imagine that, carving a great big bloody doorway through a painting by one of the most famous artists in history. I mean, look, in fairness to whoever did this in 1652, The Last Supper was absolutely buggered. Apparently, it, would, it hardly looked like a painting at all. In 1726, a bloke came and filled in missing sections with oil paints and then varnished the whole thing. Uh, and then in 1770, another bloke stripped all of that off because he thought he'd ruined it uh, and repainted over most of Leonardo's work. I can fix it. I can do better than Leonardo da Vinci, he says to himself. But it only got worse from there because then in 1796, right, it was vandalized by French invaders before, uh, we're not, we're nowhere near finished, before 18, in 1821, an expert, I hope you can, in, you can hear the inverted commas when I say that word, an expert on removing frescoes from walls so as to preserve them, he came to Santa Maria della Grazie and he said, listen, mate, I can fix this, don't worry about that, I can get that fresco off of that wall and we can preserve it like it, like it deserves to be, no dramas whatsoever. And he managed to very badly badly damage the work before realising that it wasn't a fresco. What the bloody hell, mate. Anyway, as we move into the 20th century, the the, the Second World War, the church was actually bombed uh, by the Allies and the painting had to be protected with this. It was sandbag. There was a, a special structure built around it to protect it. And then finally, right, in the late 20th century, the painting was restored once and for all, except plenty of art historians absolutely hate it and agree it doesn't look anything like Leonardo's original. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it definitely isn't. He didn't design it so a doorway would be halfway through the damn thing. Bit hard to work around that, isn't it? Anyway. Leonardo, as I say, he stuck around in Milan until 1499, and it was at this point that he left because the city was captured by France. The French came in, captured Milan, and uh, and Leonardo fled to Venice and set up shop there instead. Now, if I'm being a little vague about the details of his life, we spend a lot of time talking about his his work, his inventions, and, and his art, and that sort of stuff. It's because we just don't know that much about him, as I say. In his thousands and thousands of pages of note about, notes about more or less everything, he He did not write about himself, didn't keep a diary, didn't write about his personal philosophies, his relationships, his interests, his hopes and dreams. So we just don't know that much about the bloke on a personal level. I can't share these details with you of what he was getting up to on a day-to-day basis because we just don't know. We do know that he was a vegetarian. He loved animals and nature. We know that he seemed to be interested in just about everything, being relentlessly inquisitive and curious and driven to find out how things work. But he didn't seem to have the longest attention span, as I've mentioned. He started plenty of projects that he never finished, and he was always ready to move on to the next the next one, regardless of how the previous one was going. We also now know from the accounts of others that knew him in his lifetime that he was, as I said, very handsome, very strong. Apparently, he could bend iron in his bare hands, which sounds absolutely ridiculous. And also, for the time, he was quite tall, although by today's standards, he would be quite, he'd actually be quite short. He was around 170 centimetres tall. But on top of being really, really good looking, he was also just, uh, he was also apparently really funny and charming. So this bloke just has it all. He's hot, he's tall, he's strong, he's charismatic, extremely intelligent, and then also a, an absurdly gifted artist to boot. Unbelievable. One thing that there is a lot of speculation on, talked about how, how we tend to guess when it comes to a lot of Leonardo's personal life. One one thing that is has been the subject of, of endless speculation throughout history is, of course, his sexuality. People love to speculate on this sort of thing, generally speaking, and with Leonardo da Vinci, it's no exception. There is a general consensus that he was gay. He doesn't seem to have had too much of an interest in sex generally, but there are clues that he was indeed homosexual. He never married or had kids, which is you know certainly not a, 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 an ironclad guarantee of that sort of thing. But... He did get in legal trouble a few times with, uh, with accusations of sodomy. And he, he had a bit of a predilection for drawing and painting erotic pictures of men. But look, none of that is conclusive. And uh, I mean, certainly we'll never know for sure. But interestingly, there is one rare personal note written by Leonardo that, uh, that may shed some light on, uh, on this area of his life. Because he wrote, <clears throat> The act of procreation and anything that has any relation to it is so disgusting that human beings would soon die out if there were no pretty faces and sensuous dispositions. So that certainly offers at least a little bit of illumination on his thoughts and feelings when it came to hopping into bed with a woman. Uh, and certainly, again, none of this is conclusive. But certainly, you can. Uh, I, I leave it. I leave it to, as an exercise to the reader to make up their own mind about this sort of thing. Anyway. Venice, sorry, we got sidetracked. Venice, he heads there after leaving Milan in 1499 and he found work as a military engineer, of all things, rather than an artist. You probably heard about how he sketched things like tanks and helicopters. And I mean, this is all true for the most part. He designed wondrous contraptions that were centuries ahead of their time. Um, He designed water-cooled cannons, other gunpowder weapons as well, horse-driven vehicles that whirled scythe blades around, and, and even a rudimentary diving suit to be worn to sneak up on a ship underwater and try to sink it sneakily like that. Now, look, you know, not many of these designs were hugely successful. They were so far ahead of their time that they would have been enormously expensive and impractical to build. But people have attempted to build them these days in the modern era based on his drawings and have had some measure of success, you know, mixed results. The diving suit kind of worked, right, but the, the, the tank didn't. Um, uh, but look, these military engineering projects just the just the tip of the iceberg. Leonardo sketched out plans from for everything from bridges to lens grinding machines uh, to devices to test the strength of wire, hydraulic con- contraptions to to pump water, and of course, very famously, human powered flying machines. Leonardo really seemed to have had a, a real thing for trying to fly. He he studied the flight of birds, attempting to figure out how he could make it happen with humans. His helicopter was an absolute non-starter because uh, attempts to, to, to recreate his drawings ended up with a, a, a machine a device where you know in a helicopter like the, the the rotor blades spin one way and the bit that you get into the vehicle part sort of stays stationary and and doesn't move well in Leonardo's helicopter the blades spin one way and the vehicle part spins the other which is not ideal uh, not ideal, uh, being in you know a vehicle that's rotating the opposite direction of the rotor above it. Um, but he did design a glider and a parachute that you know probably would work. Or although you know you probably need a bit more than probably when you're trying to fly, really, don't you? But look, all of this just goes to show how advanced his intelligence was—that he could grapple with topics from hydraulics to centripetal force to to aerodynamics. I mean, look, I've got a, I have got a hard enough time washing my clothes in a purpose-built machine, but Leonardo da Vinci was out here designing diving suits and hang gliders. And he was even able to conceptualize ideas that weren't feasible at the time, but are now common, completely commonplace. He, 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 he conceptualized things like adding machines, calculators. Uh, solar power, right, was something that Leonardo thought we would be able to harness, even though, obviously, you know, it wasn't feasible in his time and ultimately didn't come about because of the ideas he had. I mean, it's it's tragic, really, to think that the world just wasn't ready for this bloke's genius. His ideas, his concepts, his inventions, his designs, they're all so far ahead of their time. They weren't published in a timely manner as well uh, after his death. And so, so much of what Leonardo invented or designed never really influenced the March of Scientific Progress. He, he just jumped too far ahead in the tech tree. Anyway, sorry, Venice. I, we got sidetracked again. Venice, right, yeah. He worked there as a military engineer. He was tasked with designing ways to defend the waterborne city from naval attack. And he did this for, you know, a, a, quite a short time comparatively. He didn't stick around for long. He was back in Florence within a couple of years. And it was there he continued to work as a military engineer, but this time for the Borgias, right? Uh, but also not just a military engineer, also an architect and a cartographer. You can go online and see an incredibly detailed map that he drew for Cesare Borgia, right? This is this is a map that is, I mean, I've said this so many times, but so far ahead of its time, right? This is a map that that portrayed uh, the layout of a city very accurately with, uh, with things like, I mean, Measurement, basic measurement taken into account when drawing this map. It was uh, and, and and perspective and, and other things that again wasn't weren't super commonplace at the time. And it, it's you're gonna look at this and be like, yeah, it's an old map. Great, I've seen these before. But just again, put it in its time and and recognize it for what it is. An, an incredible piece of work. But uh, he didn't stick around working for the Borgias for too long. He left their service in 1503 and returned to the Guild of St. Luke. And it was there in 1503 that he began a new painting, a portrait of a young woman. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's referred to in Italian as La Gioconda, but in English we call it the Mona Lisa. Now look, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass here. I'm going to call it as I see it. You know, when we've talked about Mozart and Beethoven and Shakespeare and all the rest of these genius artists, I've told you how much I love their work and how incredible it is. But I mean, come on, the Mona Lisa. I mean, I remember as a kid, right, seeing this painting, in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most expensive painting in the world and thinking that. And look, I have to confess, like, my opinion has not changed in the intervening decades. It's just a painting of some bird what has no eyebrows. I really don't get it. I mean, sure, it showed off his pioneering mastery of of these techniques, fumato, his mastery of light and shadow. All of that from the from a technical standpoint, certainly I'm on board. It's a very impressive painting, but it's so unimpressive in real life, man. It's absolutely tiny. I really don't get what the fuss is about. I mean, I, I like the drawings the helicopters and the lens grinders, to be honest. They're much more interesting. And I mean, again, st- technical standpoint, very impressive. Ahead of its time, incredible artistic skill, sfumato, sure. But it's just a kind of boring painting, man. It really doesn't get me going. The, the painting became monumentally famous after it was stolen from the Louvre in 1911. Before this, it wasn't particularly popular or anything. But in 1911, a bloke named Vincenzo Perugia, who worked for the Louvre, He was an Italian nationalist and he nicked it. He nicked the painting off the wall, hid in a broom closet and then walked out after the museum had closed with the painting under his coat. Absolute genius move there, the highest of the century. Um, Anyway, he tried to get it back into Italy. He tried to sell it back to people in Italy who were going to return this painting to where he believed it should be, but he was unable to find a buyer. It stayed in his apartment for two years while he tried to sell it. Um, uh, But eventually when he got in touch with one potential buyer, and attempted to flog it there, he got caught, and the Mona Lisa returned to the Louvre. Sorry, Perugia couldn't get it back to your native Italy. And of course, today it still hangs there in the Louvre, and you can go and see it for 30 seconds. With the new queue system that they have in place, absolutely not worth it. I cannot, cannot recommend you avoid this enough. Sorry, Leonardo, it's just not that interesting a painting. All the nonsense that people have projected onto it about her enigmatic smile and the eyes that follow you around the roof, it's all nonsense. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just not picking up what you're putting down. Anyway, look, if you're an art history nerd and you want to enlighten me as to why this painting actually rules, I'd be very grateful. I've been confused about this painting's popularity and, and, and status since I was around eight years old, so I'm very ready to be told that I'm wrong about it. But Leonardo, he bloody loved this painting, he absolutely shagged it. He worked on the Mona Lisa from 1503 onwards, he carried around with it as he travelled, working on it here and there for, for much of the rest of his life, right? It's thought to be a portrait of the Italian noblewoman Lisa del Giacondo, but, uh, but people still love to argue about that, and uh, look, I'm not getting into it. Give me his drawings any day, mate. Give me profile of an ancient captain. Give me antique warrior in profile. That's the da Vinci that I want to see. Anyway. In 1506, the French governor of Milan summoned Leonardo back to Milan from Florence, commissioning him to work on more works of art. Um, Now, this meant that, well, it not only meant that Leonardo left unfinished projects back in Florence as he was summoned to, to Milan, but also led him to start new projects in Milan that he also never finished. The governor commissioned. Oh, mate! You're not going to. You're never going to guess what the governor commissioned. The governor commissioned another equestrian statue, and Leonardo this time got as far as a wax model before going on to uh, never finish the real thing. But no worries. He settled back into life in Milan. Did all right for himself. He took on. He took on commissions. He took on students. He lived comfortably enough. It seems. But then in 1512, another bloke commissioned another equestrian statue from Leonardo. Clearly, he hadn't done his homework on this bloke. Clearly, he hadn't realised that if there's one thing Leonardo could not do, we've talked about all the amazing things that Leonardo could do, one thing he couldn't do was finish a bloody statue of a horse. Because this one wasn't finished either. Zero from three. But again, maybe this one wasn't his fault. This time, Milan was once again invaded when this statue was supposed to be built forcing the French from the city, and Leonardo left Milan the next year in 1513. He spent three years in Rome, living in the Apostolic Palace in the in the Vatican. He lived there at the same time that both Raphael and Michelangelo were hanging out there. But interestingly, uh, these blokes weren't mates, not even close. It definitely wasn't a Teenage Mutant uh, Ninja Turtle situation, because Michelangelo, who was already a, bit, already a bit of a grumpy recluse, he couldn't stand Leonardo. These blokes had been rivals for for a little while, and, and and Raphael, who you might think, again, olden days, right, they all lived at the same time. Raphael was 30 years younger than Leonardo, so I don't know how much they actually had in common. But nonetheless, Leonardo mucked around in Rome with, again, some of the most famous artists of the of the age uh, hanging about as well. Michelangelo's just finished the Sistine Chapel, and, uh, you know, the two of them, again, while they didn't see eye to eye, certainly can't argue that they, uh, they defined this period of artistic history, of, of, of the history of art. But uh, while he was in the Vatican, in this, in this period of his, uh, his career, it really does seem that art took a bit of a backseat to his other interests. He investigated botany in the, in the Vatican gardens, uh, and quite surprisingly, given the dim view that the church took of things like this, he practiced anatomy by dissecting corpses. The notes and the drawings that resulted from his anatomical work are absolutely incredible. They are amazing. You can go online and you can see things like the drawings he did, for example, of a fetus in the womb. It's, it's amazing. And he also continued his engineering work in Rome. He drew up plans to drain the Pontine marshes to the south of Rome, although these plans were never put into place. Another unfinished project, classic Leonardo. But as I say, the later stages of his life saw him becoming much more interested in scientific inquiry than art. The very last confirmed painting he, he completed was in 1515. It was a painting called Saint John the Baptist. And this painting is thought to be based on a bloke named Salai, who was one of Leonardo's servants, uh, who also may have ended up being a lover of his as well. In any case, the painting took a a backseat to the science... Uh, His vast collection of notes expanded and expanded with drawings of everything from the the cross-sections of human anatomy to exploded technical drawings to detailed depictions of animals, all sorts of stuff. His interests really seemed to know no bounds. This bloke seemed to want to know everything, about everything, and he got a fair way along that track too. Unfortunately, however, Leonardo, who is now in his 60s, began to suffer from declining health while living in Rome. He had a series of strokes and was ultimately left with a paralysed right hand by the year 1517, which affected his ability to paint. He moved to the Loire Valley in France in 1516 at the behest of the French King Francis I, and the two of them actually became good mates after Leonardo's move there. But it wasn't too long after this move, just three years in fact, that Leonardo da Vinci finally died on the 2nd of May in 1519, probably after having had another stroke. His estate was divided between friends and family and servants and, in all likelihood, lovers, too. Salai got, I mean, can you guess, Salai got the Mona Lisa itself, Um, but it was another one of Leonardo's potential lovers, a bloke whose name was Francesco Melzi, who inherited all of Leonardo's notes, his drawings, his sketches, and and everything else. Over 13,000 pages in all, as I said, and Melzi attempted the Herculean task of publishing everything that Leonardo had produced. And it's thought that Leonardo maybe had intended his works and his notes to be published eventually because a lot of the notes were self-contained. A lot of the topics that he covered, all of the information that he had he had investigated and, and come up with, was crammed onto a single page with, with drawings and, and, and sketches and whatever else, which seems to indicate that he did mean it for publication because none of the notebooks were in any particular order. You could pick one random page and it was a self-contained scientific document that didn't rely on anything else. Unfortunately, however, Melzi, well, Melzi followed in the footsteps of Leonardo da Vinci and never quite followed through on, public, on, on getting all this stuff published. And when he died in 1570, and his, when his son inherited all these thousands of bits of old paper, his son wasn't much interested in in publishing them either. Melzi and his and his kid both completely failed in getting Leonardo's work out there and instead Melzi's son gave a lot of this stuff away. He gave a lot of these uh, the the notebooks and the the sketches and the drawings and and everything else. He gave a lot of them away and they slowly but surely were dispersed around Europe and then ultimately the world and today there are small collections of Leonardo's notes in museums and, and galleries around the world but it's It's a tragedy to think about how many of these pages have simply been lost to history. I mean, it's wonderful that we can go to museums and galleries and see some of the incredible work that this amazing man did in his lifetime 500 years ago. But when you think about how many of these pieces of paper with these incredible, insightful, amazing revelations written and drawn all over them, you think about how many of them have just disappeared and been lost forever. It is... It really is a tragedy. But even so, the legacy of Leonardo da Vinci is still absolutely monumental. His genius was so vast to make him enormously famous even in his own lifetime. But since his death, it has only grown in the intervening centuries. Not only did Leonardo advance the world of art and painting with his extraordinary technical skill that was years ahead of its time, his curiosity about... Everything and, and anything led to the thousands and thousands of incredible, insightful, and also very beautiful drawings and sketches and notes and thoughts that we have today. His inventions, both both theater, theoretical and practical, were marvelously advanced. Modern technology that we take for granted today was foreseen or at least conceptualized by this bloke living 500 years ago. He knew so much about so much with his breadth of knowledge encompassing everything, as I say, from anatomy and biology to mechanics and engineering, from astronomy to cartography, there seemed to be nothing that this bloke couldn't master. Except, I suppose, finishing his projects. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is as much of the story of Leonardo da Vinci as I can tell you. Again, I mean, it's a shame we don't know more about him as a person, as a bloke. It's it's a shame we don't have more of an insight into his personal life, his personal character. But I tell you what, his works speak for themselves. And even if I'm not the biggest fan of a work like the Mona Lisa, I can still appreciate and recognise its place. It's a very important place in history, in the history of, of art and culture and... Uh, and and the way and again the way that it reflects the the influence that Leonardo da Vinci has had on on our on our civilization on our species you know he was he was an incredible bloke anyway i do hope you've enjoyed this episode of half us history another one coming your way next week of course looking forward to your company then and in the meantime leaving you with all the boring housekeeping stuff here net. use the contact form to get in touch and if you want to suggest an episode idea please do again we are focusing on broader uh, scale stuff we're talking about bigger picture uh, you know very famous people and events and ideas and, and all that sort of stuff uh, at the moment rather than getting very granular on the uh, you know the, the rather more specific topics that we've covered in the past so if you've got an idea please do get in touch again and if you want to support the show the best ways to do it of course you can either go on the merch shop you can go and buy some merch for yourself there uh, the link can be found at halfhousehistory.net or Patreon co- patreon.com A couple of new patrons this week thank you so much for signing up wonderful to have you all along thank you to everyone who is supporting the show week in and week out and gaining access to things like uh, uncut episodes and the show notes and all that sort of stuff. By the way, um, I've I I've said this in the past, I'll say it again. Uh, it's been pointed out to me a couple of times that the show notes are very useful study guides for people who are looking, an ex- looking for an accessible entry point into any of the topics that we've covered. Um, I have notes available for... I don't know how far back it goes, a long, long way back. And if you are a patron and you want show notes for an episode where the notes aren't available on the patron website, just just let me know and I'll send them to you. No worries at all. Anyway, patreon.com slash half-hours history. Huge thanks to all the people uh, on, on Patreon supporting me week in, week out. Couldn't do it without you. Anyway, that's it for this week. See you back in next week for more Half-Hours History. Until then, leaving with a question posed on Reddit, of course. Redditor Total War Strategist asks, how is Leonardo da Vinci so smart? if he was just an art major.